God is not satisfied, not in some legalistic sense that I'm not living up to all the standards that God has in his word, but no, God is love and God is a jealous God. He's jealous for us as a loving father and wants what's best for us. And really all we're doing is seeing, yeah, there's so much more in Jesus than what I've experienced. You are grateful for what the Lord has done, but you have a desire for more, and that should always be a compelling force in our life. Welcome to our latest series, where we want to discover what true victory looks like and how to live that life. Today, we'll look at God's loving and passionate zeal. The Bible is full of God's loving appeals toward us that we would come out of the world, out of sin, out of bondage, and live in fellowship with him. When our own hearts begin to burn with a desire for God, then we are compelled into deeper levels of intimacy with him. When that happens in us, it's the beginning of living in victory. This is Purity for Life. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for our latest series, Victory. These next three episodes will make up the first part of our series, and in it, we want to give you three things that are absolutely essential to a life of victory. Here are the three things we'll be covering. In today's episode, we'll talk about the holy dissatisfaction of God. Next week, we'll look at the need to be poor in spirit. And then finally, we'll look at walking in the power of the Spirit. So that's where we're headed. Okay, let's get to our subject today. God has a holy and zealous dissatisfaction with our present spiritual condition. What does that have to do with living in victory? Well, here's what. Complacency is the death of the spiritual life. In America, Oftentimes, we reduce God down to manageable proportions, to a being that we can feel comfortable around. We put him on t-shirts and coffee mugs. He's always nice, always wants us to be happy. He's like a jolly grandfather. But this anemic, distorted view of God has left millions feeling comfortable around him while being in bondage to all kinds of sin. It creates a spiritual lethargy which kills any real desire to live in victory. And this is deadly for any person who calls themselves Christian. So, with all that in mind, if you're comfortable in your sin, God is not satisfied. If you're desperate to change, but still in bondage, God is not satisfied. If you don't have any obvious sin in your life, but your Christianity is little more than a checklist, God is not satisfied. This whole thing might seem confusing right now, but let's get into this because I think it will be clear by the end of the show why understanding that God is not satisfied is vital for living in victory. Some of you listening to me today, you're comfortable in your sin. You enjoy it. You constantly think about it. 
you find ways to give yourself to it. And so far, there haven't been any repercussions. There are some risks, sure, but to you, it's worth it for the pleasure. If that describes you, I can tell you, you are on very dangerous ground because God is definitely not satisfied with that. In the book of Ezekiel, there's three chapters that are very similar to each other, chapter 3, 18, and 33. And they all have a very similar type of thought where it's referring to Ezekiel being a watchman, but he deals with something in all three of these chapters, and I'll read out of chapter 18, but he deals with the aspect of those who sin or those who walk in righteousness. And in chapter 18, in verse 20, it says, The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him, and the wickedness of the wicked man will be charged against him. But then he goes on and he brings some hope, and then he also brings some very strong rebuke. He says in verse 21, But if a wicked man turns away from all the sins he has committed, and notice that it's all, not a couple, but he turns away from all the sins he committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. None of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him because of the righteous things he has done, he will live. So now here's the promise. Okay, everybody that sins is going to pay the price for their sin. But if somebody who is in the practice of sin turns from his sin and and stops practicing sin, then God will forgive him and he will live. But now here's this part. In verse 24, it says, But if a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable things the wicked man does, will he live? None of the righteous things he has done will be remembered because of the unfaithfulness he is guilty of and because of the sins he has committed, he will die. So God is not a respecter of persons because somebody prays the sinner's prayer and claims to be Christian, but is living like the world and in the practice of sin, he is going to receive the same judgment as those who maybe never knew to pray such a prayer. It's not the prayer that saves a person, it's the faith. And we are saved by grace through faith, and faith is going to have an expression. It's going to be trusting in God, and that trust in God is going to produce a particular response, something out of our life. So somebody might say, well, that's just the Old Testament. But you go to the New Testament and, you know, then Paul ends up saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through uh, 10, he says that, don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists many sins, not all sins, but many sins. And he says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those who think that they can be in the practice of sin and still go to heaven are self-deceived because they're refusing to believe the truth of God's word. They are selectively taking some verses and say, oh, I'm saved by grace and God understands. I guess those are some really terrifying words to me because God does understand. And when people are in the practice of sin, it is always willful. There may be some addiction to it, like a drug addict or something, but there was the willfulness that got themselves into that addiction and the willfulness that is still there keeping them in that addiction and keeping them from seeking the help that they can have and find through Christ and and the body of Christ to overcome those sins. So we are without excuse. He offers us all the grace we need to overcome, 
He offers us all the help we need to overcome. And there is no way that we can look at the Word of God and come to the conclusion that we can practice sin and still be right with God. The person that Glenn just described, that was me before I came to Pure Life Ministries in 2008. I was blind to the warnings of Scripture. I said those exact things. I must be saved because I grew up in the church, because I was in ministry, because I said a prayer. But even if we can't see the consequences of sin, they are working silently in our lives. Well, when I think of uh, someone in that situation, uh, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 comes to mind immediately. Uh, The scripture says there, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. And then, then it goes on to say, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And of course, he who sows to the spirit reaps uh, of the spirit and uh, everlasting life comes out of that. But it's that middle piece there, he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. And I really like the language of scripture here because it, it, it acknowledges that it's a sowing and reaping process, just like uh, has been pointed out that we seem to get away from uh, – get away with our sins sometimes. The harvest isn't immediate. Uh, it's like when I was a teenager working on a farm and, you know, we sowed corn in May, but we didn't harvest it until October. So there's a long gap in between there. And that's what giving over to pornography is doing in, in someone like this. Uh, behind the scenes, that, that giving over is sprouting and growing and it's weaving its way into many areas of their life. Uh, so they might be oblivious to what's happening, but every time they're indulging their flesh in pornography, they're sowing corruption. And that corruption is going to show up in, in literally hundreds of different ways. Our, our attitudes, we will tend to get edgy, uh, easily irritated by others, you, you know, maybe even short-tempered to the point where we have these angry outbursts that to others don't even make sense. You know, uh, We just lose our interest in healthier activities. Uh, we start investing less and less time in the uh, relationships with our family and friends. You know, Our emotions just aren't attached to those people anymore. And hand in hand with all of that, we're, we're inviting into our lives these feelings of despair and guilt and shame that can literally become like overwhelming feelings in our lives. So, you know, you can just go on and on talking about the kinds of corruptions that are going to come in uh, with this sowing and reaping that's going on here in the person's life. These are really serious thoughts that require serious self-examination. We've ministered to hundreds of men over the years in this same condition, and it's really difficult for a lot of people to bring their sin into the light because it requires a real honesty with themselves and with God and with others to acknowledge where they're at spiritually. But the alternative is just more self-deception. Psalm 31 says, "'Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble.'" My eye waste away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. And then Psalm 32, 1 through 5, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And yeah, for me, these verses aren't just, I guess I've experienced these verses. They're not just like words on a paper. I have testimony of this. I mean, when I was in, I did, you know, Bible school for a few years. And when I was in Bible school, I was in sin, hiding sin. And I remember just days in the class being so convicted, feeling like my, literally feeling like I was being drained, almost feeling depressed at times. And I remember one day specifically on a Sunday, I was listening to a message, (laughs) trying to actually listen to a message that was more encouraging because I didn't want to be convicted so much. And even in that, the Holy Spirit was convicting me until I confessed my sin. And it was like immediately when I confessed my sin, joy came. And like, that's what God wants to do. He wants us to be satisfied with his goodness and and, and dwell with him. Um, you know, that's why his uh, he makes sin uncomfortable. So I, I've experienced it, like being uncomfortable in sin and his heaviness and pushing, rejecting that, that heaviness getting heavier and heavier, but eventually in confessing it and turning to the Lord and just laying out what's really going on in my heart to him, there was a blessing that came from that. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but that season doesn't last long. Sexual sin often comes with a really high price tag, and some of you are now paying it. All the consequences, both in your inside world and your outside world, are manifesting themselves, and it's making you feel desperate to change. You may even be earnestly praying for freedom, but still, nothing seems like it's happening. There are a few reasons why this might be the case, but let me start off by saying, if you're desperate to change, but still in bondage to some kind of sin, God isn't satisfied. There's all kinds of pain and problems that come with being in sin for a long time. And the pain and misery can really make people desperate to change. This is certainly understandable at first, but why do these motivations for change often leave us without victory? The reason we don't have victory at times is because we are experiencing worldly sorrow and not godly sorrow. So, uh, and, And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 7. Worldly sorrow, I think, could more be defined by we are sorry for the consequences. Um, We hate that what we have done is robbing us of the blessings from God. Um, we hate that we got caught and and we're having to uh, have the repercussions on us. This isn't enough motivation, it, but God can use this. And as a um, biblical counselor, I see this a lot, that people will come for counseling because they're suffering the effects of their sin, their pain, legitimate pain that they're in but they they haven't understood what the real problem is. So that's okay. The Lord takes us all, really, if we want to um, look at it often anyway. He takes us in our misconceptions or our lack of understanding about relationship with Him. So, so they come in a certain amount of desperation because they are in the consequences. And 
and they want out, they want things to change. But um, here's the problem, why this is not, this kind of desperation being only worldly sorrow will not help them all the way through to true freedom. They are still uh, worshiping at the altar of the idol happiness. And that's what's really been motivating them to come to um, get help or come to the Lord is that there's something they want that they think God is either withholding from them or they're being punished, or if they can just get this out of their life, then they'll have the blessings of God, they'll have the spouse or whatever. And um, and the problem is they haven't, that, that idol that's on the throne of their heart hasn't been dethroned, that idol happiness, or we can even say self-love. So as long as that's still in control and the on the um, throne of their heart, it, they're not going to experience that true, real freedom. So instead, Paul tells us that we must experience a godly sorrow, and the difference with that is um, that it's it's not just that we hate the consequences, but we hate the sin, and um, more than that, it's it's that place where we weep over the uh, reality of a heart that would be so unfaithful to him who died for us who have done who has done so much for us who has loved us more than anyone and so when we experience godly sorrow our heart is going to break because we understand that we have broken his heart and that he truly wants the best for us that when he says to uh, repent it's for our good when he says to be transformed. It's because he loves us. So the godly sorrow really is that that desire to please the Lord. It's no longer it's that self is on the throne or that I, I, I just want to be happy. Now it's I want to live to please Jesus. I want to make him happy. But worldly sorrow isn't the only reason why some people who seem to be desperate don't find freedom. Here are a couple other reasons. Some people do have a victim mentality where they think somehow God's giving up on them. Uh, they've tried everything they can to overcome their sin, but they're just not getting anywhere. And I would say if someone's in that, you know, in that camp, so to speak, there is two things that could be very wrong with their approach. Number one is maybe they really don't want to stop their sin and they're double-minded. So they really haven't given it their all as far as finding freedom Um, God always wants to save the sinner. Uh, Jesus came to save us from our sins. And John said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right, some versions say, the power to become the children of God. So with that is the idea of process and change. It's not a one-and-done prayer to be saved, but it's actually a deliverance from a lifestyle of sin and coming into a lifestyle of godliness, you know, living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Um, And then the other aspect is it's not just that maybe someone doesn't want to change. Maybe they sincerely want to change, but they're looking to the wrong source. They're not really trusting in the Lord to set them free or even believing that God wants to set them free, but they're trusting in themselves or some human gimmick or some plan of their own to find freedom. And it's futile because they're looking in the wrong place. Only Jesus can save us from our sins. You know, and Paul talks about this whole idea of uh, transformation. He's talking to believers when he talks about, for instance, in uh, Ephesians 4, of this process of change. He talks about putting off the old man, 
and old conduct, behavior, way of doing things, being transformed by the renewing of our mind, and then putting on the new man and living out a godly life. It is a process of change, and it's the Holy Spirit that's the change agent. And it's the Word of God who convicts us of our need to change and empowers us to change. But it has nothing to do with this whole idea of self-improvement or somehow, you know, really, isn't that what self-help is, man becoming his own redeemer? It's about trusting completely in the Lord, and His power will be perfected in your weakness. If you really want to be free, 100%, God wants it more than you, and He will set you free. One more thing we'd like to touch on before we keep going. Living in victory is worth the fight. So when people just want easy change or a quick fix that won't cost them anything, God, he's not satisfied. Well, the mindset of the person we're talking about here is actually fairly common. There are a lot of people out there who have tried a number of the quick fix options that get offered to them to uh, to help free them from their sexual sin, and yet they find themselves still bound in sin. Uh, They've been misled into thinking that overcoming sin is actually easier than than it really is. So let me just say this clearly. Changing sinful habits is hard work. Throwing off uh, this yoke of slavery to some sin, especially a sin as pleasurable as sexual sin, is going to take time and effort. Most of the time, it's going to take resources outside of ourselves even to, to accomplish that. Yes, uh, it takes the power of God uh, for sure. You know, he is, God is critical to every aspect of a person's ultimate victory. But God doesn't intervene on his own. He wants to partner with us. He wants to marry his strength and power to our faith and willingness. And he's almost certainly going to allow our faith to get tested along the way. Uh, but people just don't want to face some of those truths. Uh, it's, it's just easier to blame God. It's easier to buy into the notion that I'm just a victim here and that somehow it's really even God's fault that I'm stuck where I am. Uh, but the choice to sin, you know, let's be clear, the, the choice for us to sin is never God's choice. First uh, Thessalonians 4.3 even says very clearly that God's will is that we abstain from sexual immorality. So God is always willing, always willing to help and come alongside us in finding freedom from that bondage to sexual sin. So to me, here's the bottom line. Uh, a, a lot of people simply aren't truly desperate. They just pretend to be uh, in an effort to overcome their sin, make it seem like they're doing something about it. Um, but even if they are desperate, you know, th- there must also be hand in hand with that then the willingness to do it God's way, uh, to take the way out that God's offering them. Uh, for example, for some, that might mean coming to the Pure Life Ministries residential program. But how many guys out there have heard of the program, had an open door to the program, but for whatever reason just aren't willing to follow through on that. Um, But whatever the way out is in uh, someone's personal situation, they need to stay committed to it for the long haul. They need to keep crying out to God. They need to invest in their relationship with God until he is truly on the throne of their heart, calling the shots of their life. They need to, to just quit trying to have a place for both God and sin in their heart. I think it's clear so far that God is not satisfied when people are living in sin. He's not satisfied when the people he loves 
choose evil over goodness, and destroy their lives by sowing to the flesh. He's not satisfied when people only want change because sin is hurting them and affecting their happiness. He's not satisfied when people think that God isn't that interested in helping them get free. But maybe some of you listening, you're in a different category altogether. You don't have any obvious outward sins in your life. So why wouldn't God be satisfied? Do you remember what we said in the first show about victory? That living in victory is about being radically transformed so that sin and self are overcome and God's powerful life is being lived out through you? That is God's aim. God is never satisfied when people think that Christianity is just a list of do's and don'ts. To be just satisfied with where they're at, you know, just going to church is just a deception because they don't realize what is really waiting for them. They don't realize what God is really wanting to bring them into. He isn't just out to bring us to the place to forgive our sins. Um, And not to take us to this mystical kind of paradise where we're not going to have any more pain or, or problem. He's trying to bring us into the place of fellowship with him. And everything about Christianity, the biblical faith, is about relationship, not about the do's and don'ts. When the relationship is right, the do's and don'ts have their proper place. So when we love God, we don't want to break his heart. So we seek all that we can within us not to sin. It's not about the do's and don'ts. It's about the relationship. The moment we remove ourselves from the relationship, then it's just a list of do's and don'ts, and nobody is saved by any form of law, by none. We are saved by grace, but grace brings us into fellowship. And that fellowship is what the relationship is all about. It's about what the faith is all about. It's about what heaven's all about. And to be in a place of mere religion without relationship, I mean, why would you want to spend an eternity in that? Calvary and all that he went through and all that was prior to that was all about wanting to bring us in the fellowship. Everything. Why? What What do we have to give him? What? What is it? You know, I, I mean... He is offering us something so phenomenal. Shouldn't our response be to that, the abandonment of our life, rather than a half-hearted, lackadaisical, if it works type of thing, I'll go to church or whatever? I mean, he is a great king, as the Old Testament tells us, and he deserves our total, complete devotion. He deserves that because he's God. He deserves that because he's our Savior. And he wants that because he truly does care. And so what a horrendous bondage to be in, in this dead church religion of do's and don'ts, when the wonder of true relationship with the living God is waiting for us. And I think that's really where the problem comes down to be, is that people that are in the bondage of religion don't want to surrender. They still got control. They're still the boss. They can still live their life the way that they want. If they come to the place of surrender, they've got to give up the control. And that's why you have verses like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that talk about us being a living sacrifice. That's all about surrender. And what does a living sacrifice do? It is transformed in the renewing of their mind, and they are are changed. They're, They're no longer the same person. And as a result of this transformation, this surrender that goes on in their life, they begin to find God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
And so his pleasing will comes about not through the list of do's and don'ts, but through surrender, by being conformed into his image and being uh, changed so that we're no longer living according to the ways of this world. For some people living with a checklist mentality, it becomes all-consuming. They have a long list with rules for every aspect of life, it seems like. This can be really overwhelming. And if this describes your life, God is not satisfied. What I've found personally that what God wants in my life is fellowship and intimacy with him. That's the purpose of what God has called me for. So when I'm in that checklist mentality, when I'm trying to like check the boxes, do different uh, things to please the Lord or work my way up into his favor, I'm missing out on that intimacy and fellowship. And when I thought of this, I thought of Philippians, Philippians 3, uh, 7 through 11, uh, where Paul is talking about his past uh, religious life, keeping all of the Mosaic law and all those things. And he says here, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And he goes on. But that's what I've found um, for me brings me out of that checklist mentality. And there's two types of people in that. One is a person who really thinks and believes that, you know, because they keep their checklist, you know, I'm good. And I remember very well how that was living in that. It's like I built a prison wall around myself where everything that the Lord was trying, his love that he was trying to give me and draw me into relationship with him, I just, it would keep him out because I thought I had everything that I needed thought I was keeping the rules, doing the things that I needed, but I was missing the intimacy with Jesus that he wanted. It was like that prison keeping me inside and locked out of the love of God. And so what happened <laughs> is he just gently and humbly showed me my need. And when I began to see my need for him, and humble myself and acknowledge that need, those prison walls became, uh, well, they began to crumble. And I, I was set free then to know Jesus in that. Someone might object and say, what's wrong with having my checklist? My life is pretty good. But listen to one other thing that Austin reveals about what sometimes happens in a person's inner life when their Christianity is all about rules. Yeah, I think if they really are honest with themselves and look, take a deep look at their inside world, 
they would find it to be like a desert. Like it's dry when nobody else is looking. And when I don't have the affirmation of people that see me do my checklist, when it's just me and I look inside, it's dry, dead. I feel dead. And that's the way I was. I was dead inside. So I guess another way you could put that is um, I always felt like I was standing outside of something that I could see in other people. Like I could see that other people were living life to a fuller degree. And that always was like a mystery to me. Well, it was like, I'm doing all these things, but inside I'm still like just dry and dead. Why is that? So that's, that's what I started realizing. Oh, there is something wrong. Something is not right. And I need to look and see what that is. Okay, let's move on to our last group, mature believers. They're not enslaved to any sin. Their relationship with God is vibrant, dynamic, and intimate. They've been steadily growing in the Lord for years, maybe even decades. You know what's really interesting about these people? Even with all their maturity and growth, they know that God is still not satisfied. If anyone is listening in that category, you know exactly what I mean. It's not that God doesn't love you, and it's not that God isn't pleased with you. It's that God is passionately yearning for a deeper relationship with you. And any mature believer is also not satisfied because they're yearning for a deeper relationship with Christ. We see this in the words of Paul when he says to the Philippian church in the third chapter, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the experience of every mature Christian. There is a burning passion to know him more and experience him more. Well, Paul's words here in Philippians highlight what I think is one of the amazing truths about the Lord, that no matter how much we've learned of him, no matter how much we've seen or experienced of him, there's always much, much more. Uh, in our earthly bodies, uh, we, with the limitations of our earthly minds, we can know only just a little tiny fraction of who he really is. And yet we struggle to take even that little bit that we know and put it into practice in our lives. You know, we're supposed to be like him in the sense of like having his character, his heart, his desires. Uh, you know, I find myself asking, like, has anyone come close to mastering all of that? Does anyone even, can we lay claim to a sinless day, just one sinless day in our lives? Uh, we all have so far to go in being Christ-like. There's still so much of me in the way. 
And, uh, you know, I just think about what Paul was saying here, the, the great apostle Paul, this man who went into the third heaven, a man who saw things that he was forbidden to speak about here on earth. And he's freely admitting, I have so much further to go in learning how to obey and please and love the Lord. So we simply cannot fathom the depths of God's heart. His love is so pure, so divine, so unlike any other love (laughs) that we can imagine. And he wants to draw us ever closer, closer and closer, taking us deeper and deeper so that we can be lavished with and immersed in that perfect love. His heart is like wide open to us, and we just need to keep pressing in, keep seeking him. That's the invitation. When you get a sight of him, there's something about him that just draws you to himself. Like, think of the parable of the man who sells everything that purchased the field that contained this treasure. Like, he's a treasure that is so, when I see him clearly, it makes me want to get rid of everything that would get in the way of knowing him. And, you know, I just think of what happened with Paul. Like, he gets a sight of Jesus and he counts everything as lost because of how valuable um, and how worthy you know, it is to know Jesus. And it really is a beautiful thing to know that God wants to call us deeper and deeper into intimacy with Him. Yeah, it is interesting that Paul um, wasn't satisfied, and we would look at him and consider him like a model Christian if you, if you could be such. Uh, he even said, follow after me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he was a mature believer and he loved the Lord, but he always knew that there was more. There's always more uh, in a depth of relationship with the Lord. And just, you know, knowing God who is infinite, why should we ever, you know, come to a place where, okay, I've arrived. And in my own life, even recently, God has given me more of a hunger that I'm, I'm not satisfied. And it's not like a, I think some theologians or some people in the past have called it a holy dissatisfaction. You are grateful for what the Lord has done, but you have a desire for more. And that should always be a compelling force in our life. I want more. And God is not satisfied, not in some legalistic sense that maybe I'm not making the grade, that I'm not living up to all the standards that God has in his word that are clearly set forth in his word is what it looks like to live a Christian life. But no, God is love and God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his glory that he doesn't want anything in our lives to detract from his glory, but he's also jealous for us as a loving father and wants what's best for us. And really, all we're doing is seeing, yeah, there's so much more in Jesus than what I've experienced, and we should never be complacent or self-satisfied or I've arrived. I don't know, the Lord has been giving me a new sight or a new, just a new aspect of what our relationship like with him should look like Uh, and he makes that metaphor it's like marriage and us becoming one with him and when you're in the presence of God you always become aware of your neediness and that's what I've found is the more that I spend time with him and you know whatever I'm not (laughs) great at it but just you know in my little ways the little ways that the Lord is leading me in I'm just seeing more and more it's like wow I'm just not like you Jesus 
I'm not like you. And so his desire for me and for all of us is that we would become one, one in him. And while that is his desire, and I live in this flesh, I will always be needing to be sanctified and drawn more into that oneness with him. Why is God not satisfied? Because he wants us to finish well, to keep pressing on, don't give up, don't let up, stronger, more than ever, we should always be growing in the faith. Um, Colossians 1.10 tells us that uh, we're to be growing. One of the things it says to be growing, ever increasing in the knowledge of God. So we need to continue to study God, live to please him, just pressing and pressing in. There's never a point where you say, well, I've paid my dues so I can just kind of step back now and let other people do the work. We have to finish well, just keep going on and don't let anything entangle us, trip us up so that we're not pressing and not finishing well. This was not some passive little thing. I want to know about Christ. He wanted to know Christ. This is about personal knowledge, personal relationship with God. And because he wanted to know Christ, he went on to say that he wanted to know the power of Christ's resurrection, which means that he wanted to walk in victory. I mean, you you cannot have a passion for Christ and want to practice sin. If you have a passion for Christ, you are going to want to overcome sin. And you will look to Christ for the grace to overcome. So that power is really present to overcome. And then he goes one step further. That we would know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. He was willing to follow Jesus even into the midst of those difficult, painful situations where he might be beaten, uh, stoned once. He was stoned to death. And uh, all these different situations that happened in prison and finally beheaded in Rome. He went through all those because he had that cry, I want to know Christ, and he wanted to walk in the power of Christ's resurrection, so he refused to run away from the trials or the difficulties. He could say, because I want to know Christ, I'm willing to go through that because I want to be with him. We have to go that next step, saying, God, whatever it takes. All right, you, have, you, you want me to go into the midst of a lion's den, I'll go in the lion's den. You want me to go in the midst of persecution, I'll do it. You want me to go in the place of ministry that's going to produce a certain amount of pain and suffering, well, I'm willing to do it because I have come to the place that my cry is I want to know Christ and I want to walk in your victory. And that's the idea that we need to have this passion that wants to take hold of Jesus Christ because he took hold of me. And when did he take hold of me? Well, It'd be 40 some odd years ago when I was in a park where I dealt drugs and he laid hands on me, grabbed hold of my life, took hold of me, but then he went and wants me now to take hold of him and to have that desire to pursue him with a passion, with the passion he deserves, which is greater than what I'm giving him even now because he deserves even more. Throughout this entire show, We've been wanting to reinforce one thought in your mind, that the first step to living in victory comes when we realize that no matter what we've attained in our spiritual journey, God is not satisfied. Why is that? Because God is a consuming fire of love. If you're a slave to sin, how could God be satisfied with that? 
He is burning with desire for everything righteous and holy and burning with hatred for all sin and wickedness. If we want to dwell with God, we must be holy. And if we will not repent of our sins, the end of the road is death and hell and an eternity separated from him. Or if you think that you're not free from sin because God is withholding it from you, how could he be satisfied? Remember, he sent his only beloved son to be butchered on a cross so that freedom would be possible for anyone who would come to him in faith. Or maybe Christianity to you is mostly just a list of do's and don'ts. How could a God of fiery, personal love be satisfied with that? No matter how long your checklist is, what is that in comparison to intimate, deep, and rich fellowship with the lover of your soul? Now, maybe you're a mature Christian and you've been steadily growing in the Lord for decades. As I already said, I don't have to tell you that God is not satisfied. If you're truly mature, you yourself are not satisfied. Despite your long years of knowing God, your heart still burns with a love and a desire for Him, a love that only grows deeper as the years pass. You know the satisfaction of His presence, and yet you yearn for more. That is the great paradox of love. You want more of Him because He is so satisfying. The more you have of Him, the more you want. Your heart has been set aflame with the eternal fire of God's love. I hope that because of this episode, you can see that God has an eager and ardent desire to do good to us, and why responding to the holy dissatisfaction of God is one of the vital ways to learn to live in victory. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.